Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, Head of Non-Dollar Rate Strategy, and I'm joined today by our Global Market Specialists, Jan Navruzzi and Joanne Spadigam. We're recording this, as always, on Thursday. <laughs> Regular listeners must be bored of me hearing me say that, um, but fresh after the ECB, literally fresh after the ECB, we've barely had time to kind of think and digest what they said or what we learned from them, uh, but I think that's probably the best place to start. Um, the markets, as we left them, had interpreted what Lagarde had said slightly dovishly. Now, of course, um, we haven't had the kind of usual follow-up ECB sources story, which may come to kind of temper the market reaction, but the, the way that they've reacted, you know, the knee-jerk reaction is for a rally in rates. Why? What do you think was driving that, Joanne? So, I mean, yeah, I didn't think it was a particularly, um, going into this, going to be a particularly interesting meeting. Uh, but it did seem that markets interpreted some of the comments around the inflationary narrative uh, as dovish. This included comments uh, uh, suggesting that the data that came in on inflation was not as high as expected in the December print, for example, which we all had expected to be uh, higher. Um, there was also some comments around underlying inflationary pressures uh, receding as well. So I think these kind of suggestions or the discussion on inflation very much did suggest that they would be uh, close to target, that they are seeing that progress coming in. So I think it was some of that. Um, I don't think the US data really helped and I think helped to drive the market a bit uh, even before the data came, before the ECB press conference started. So I think the market was perhaps already in, in, a, in a mode or was ready to be reactive a bit more to these downside inflationary narratives that were coming out. Uh, but I do think that what was interesting to me as well was I think that if she really wanted to, Lagarde could have pushed this narrative that uh, would mean that we'd fade the April rate cut. She could have really emphasized that they were looking for specifically the wage inflation data at the end of April. Uh, and that could uh, could suggest that actually the April meeting is not live. And she didn't do that. And to me, that was interesting. It did seem like she was taking a more holistic approach to the wage uh, process and to, to how they look at wage inflation. Um, so I think that does mean that April is perhaps live at this stage. Um, they've obviously got a new forecast to come in March uh, that, again, should emphasize if, if our Forecasts are, are correct that um, inflation is coming down and should be very close to target by the middle of the year. Um, so I think overall, for an uninteresting meeting, there was a lot of market reaction to what we saw. <laughs> I feel like that just characterizes today's world that an uninteresting meeting generates a, a 10 bit rally in rates. Um, you sort of alluded then to April being a potentially live meeting. I think we talked last week on the podcast about how we shifted our base case from a March first cut to a June first cut, but slightly larger first cut, so in 50 bit increments. How do you feel about that call now? Has this made, in your view, April the most likely point for a first cut or are you still holding out for for June at this point? I definitely think that the meeting today uh, re-emphasized this idea that you shouldn't necessarily trust uh, central bankers for guidance because I mean we saw them pushing back quite strongly on that um, and like on the summer rate cut decision a couple of weeks ago um, so to me it really to me emphasizes that you know data dependence is key and I think what this does more than anything is it does 
add to this idea that if they do delay rate cuts, that they do come in a larger way in the summer, because in theory, what they've done is actually acted too late. Um, so I do think that uh, April is definitely live. We still have it in our table as a, a risk case scenario. Uh, inflation could come down, wage inflation could be pretty um, benign. Uh, so I do think overall, we do stick to our June cut uh, narrative, narrative based on their previous comms, but I definitely think that the risk of that 50 basis point cut has increased uh, following this uh, press conference. Okay, all about the data then for, for the next couple of weeks. Of course, we get inflation data next week, and, and that could be really key, I think, in supporting or, or dismissing Lagarde's narrative from today. So, um, yeah, lots to watch. So, Jan, let's switch over to the US then. Um, we're in that kind of two-week period of central bank fun. Uh, we obviously get the Fed meeting next week. What are you expecting from them? So this Fed meeting won't have the, the quarterly projections that we, we get while every other meeting, uh, but what we should see or what we expect to see is, a, is actually a substantial change in the, <clears throat> in the policy statement. So first, uh, and probably more importantly, the policy statement until now still had a tightening bias in it. So uh, it, it acknowledged that further high rate hikes might be delivered if necessary or more tightening in, in some form might be delivered. That should go. I mean, we've had plenty of Fed officials uh, openly discussing how you know, next move is going to be an easing. It just it looks a little inappropriate to keep that bias. So I think that language will be shifted to indicate more of a uh, you know more of a like rates will stay where they are. Uh, rates will stay where they are until you know they get they're confident that inflation is heading back towards the two percent target. So that's one. Uh, of course, there won't be any change in the in the policy rate. Uh, Leaving at five and a quarter to five and a half percent, the the tightening bias will be dropped. I guess the current conditions paragraph can be tweaked a little bit. That part kind of like talked about how economic growth uh, has been. Uh, I think the the language there was that it was. Uh, I'm just checking like it, uh, that the growth of economic activity has been uh, has slowed down from its strong level. You need to adjust that to show that you know the slowdown has stopped now, so it's kind of growing at a moderate pace. Uh, and and finally, I would think the press conference would have uh, you know another another round of focus on the the dual mandate and how the balance of risks is now growing. There's still you know uh, not only inflation moving the right direction, but you also have the risks of unemployment flaring up. As even though you know we haven't seen anything such as non-farms turning negative yet, but uh, the the labor market is decelerating despite the. Uh, despite the above trend growth that we that, that we're still seeing, so uh, so the, the the shifts will be kind of minor, leaning dovish on the if I had to pick a side, but it's not going to be anything you know seismic or uh, I don't know if it's anything that the market hasn't priced in yet because uh, no one really expects a cut in January and markets are about half and half for uh, for March. How unlike you to lean a little bit dovish if you had to pick a side. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, really, yeah, I was going to get like a reputation like that if I continue with the. <laughs> you left Europe, and that's what happened to you. Um, so you mentioned about the growth data and how they kind of need to reassess or update their assessment of the growth backdrop. I suppose, of course, we had today uh, growth data for Q4. Um, what would you say your key takeaways were from that print? So GDP was substantially stronger than. Uh, than analyst expectations, including ours. 
we spoke about this a little bit last week when we got the retail sales data, and that hinted that the consumer was going to finish the year on a strong note. Uh, the consumer finished the year on a very, very strong note. Uh, consumption added 2% on itself, on itself to, to GDP growth. The, I, I guess I should say that GDP for fourth quarter was growing at three and grew at three and a half percent on an annualized rate. So very, very substantial growth. Uh, Bloomberg consensus ahead of it was at 2%. So beat expectations by quite the margin. So consumption added about 2% to it. Government spending was positive. Uh, net exports more or less flat, inventories added a little bit. We expected a drag there. Uh, you had some private investment as well, mainly from the tech sector, but nothing too much. It was mainly uh, the government government spending part and the consumption part that supported the this level of GDP. Growth hasn't fallen off a cliff by any means. Whether that could happen over the next six months, maybe, but uh, it still hasn't. And inflation is decelerating pretty quickly. You just kind of look at the previous couple of forecasts that the Fed put out at the September, the June, the March meeting, and, and all those. I guess June was their peak bearishness of inflation for the end of this year. Uh, you look at those forecasts, and you know we're actually realizing substantially below what they had. So, um, so inflation is decelerating really quickly, and growth is remaining stronger than the Fed and we expected. So I, I think that also maybe sets us up in a back in a in a steepener, but from a different angle, because if the Fed does follow through and deliver some cuts uh, to begin with to kind of get it more in line with where inflation is, and then growth actually does remain in a positive path. We never enter this recession. And I think that's a you know like a better steepener type of setup, like at least for the long end, where we just assume the Fed cuts a little bit and then uh, flat lines at a much higher rate than what it is now. Um, of course, when we think about the shape of the curve, it doesn't just matter what we're hearing from the Fed or what the data is telling us. You know, it's a lot, or certainly over the last couple of months, been a lot about supply too. We get the refunding announcement next week, the quarterly refunding announcement. Um, what are your expectations there? So, I think this will be the final round of increases uh, that we're going to see as far as, uh, at least in the near term, in, in coupons. And in tips, well, tips might continue actually later on into the year too, but uh, in coupon securities, it, it does look like this will be the final set. We expect to see the same exact uh, level of, of auction boosts like we got at the November one. That kind of keeps Treasury, A, in line with the regular and predictable approach to issuance, but also uh, when we forecast, you know, we, we forecast daily cash flows on a pretty granular basis. And in, uh, when we account for all the inflows and outflows, uh, if they if they increased coops just the same way as they did last time around, that that looks enough for us. Uh, there's a couple of both headwinds and tailwinds for issuance. And, uh, you know, on one side, we're seeing more pressures to the deficit. Tax revenues have slowed down a little bit. There's another bill in Congress that might add 125 billion uh, to the deficit this year. So. Uh, so there's some pressures from that side. On the other hand, if we expect QT to stop uh, mid this year, which takes away a lot of funding pressure uh, from the Treasury, right? So that's 720 billion a year that is usually uh, funded uh, because of QT, QT. Now that doesn't have to be on top of that. Uh, mortgage-backed securities, as they roll down, they tend to be reinvested into Treasury. So that's called another 20 billion of uh, supply being taken away. Uh, or at least issuance that Treasury doesn't have to do now. So there's two forces working in opposite directions. I'm pretty optimistic as far uh, as far as the impact of supply on whether it spreads or or maybe even duration. Uh, but uh, I think 
this will be the you know, like final round of increases. And from now on, it's, uh, you know, smooth sailing and kind of <laughs> you, you're going to joke around. But I think if I had to pick a side for how markets are going to react to this, it'd probably be leaning more, uh, you know, obviously. <laughs> to, uh, to okay, fair enough. We'll allow that. You can be dovish if you want. I don't mind. I'll switch soon at some point. <laughs> It'll make headlines when you do. So moving over to the UK now, uh, Imogen, we've also got the Bank of England next week. So what are your expectations there? Yeah, so unlike the Fed and the ECB, this is one of the BOE's quarterly projections. So we'll get a, a kind of thorough update of their thinking with a press conference as well, which, as we know, we don't get at every BOE meeting. Um, I think... Well, I mean, it's it's broadly consensus that they won't move rates in either direction. Um, so uh, that's not going to be the exciting part of the meeting. Um, I think there's there's two things that I'd look to in terms of, you know, what the market might react to. The first is the vote. Um, our central scenario is that we get a continuation of the vote that we've had for the last couple of months. So a 6-3 vote with three hawks voting for an additional rate hike. Um, I think that given the way that market pricing has shifted since the last meeting, given some of the data that we've had, um, I think that markets may settle on a slightly more dovish consensus for the vote. So actually 6-3 might be a little bit hawkish versus market expectations. Um, and that could drive a bit of a of a market reaction. Um, the rationale really for for voting six three um, is just that you know a lot of the arguments that the kind of three hawks had previously used for voting for additional rate hikes when it came to looking at things like the wage inflation data, when it came to looking at the um, services inflation, for example, you know that's still high and sticky it hasn't tailed off at all so it's difficult to argue that if that's why you were voting for another hike in uh november or december um that that you shouldn't really be voting for uh, another one now um and i guess linked to the votes or as justification for a, a more hawkish vote um the other element that i think could be more market moving in some ways, conversely to what we usually expect from these meetings is via the forecasts. Um, and the reason that I think that that could be market moving is because last week when we had the kind of flurry of data out of the UK, um, one of the more dovish interpretations of the data, both on the wage inflation side uh, and the overall inflation side, was just that they are now running well below the Bank of England's November projections, and therefore they would be due for a a downgrade essentially at this meeting. Of course, on the constant rate assumption, that is true, but the Bank of England published two sets of forecasts and the market rate assumption is the um, one that we focus on more. Um, and that takes, uh, you know, as the name suggests, that takes market pricing for uh, bank rate over the period as the kind of base case for how monetary policy will evolve. And so although we've had downside surprises in some of the data and inflation is running well below where their projections would have, their near term projections would have had it back in November, um, the additional easing that's now being priced into the market compared to where we were three months ago adds upward pressure to their inflation forecasts over the two to three year horizon. So 
In fact, on the market rate assumption, I think we could be looking at upward revisions above the 2% target on the two and three year um, CPI projections, which again is justification for the hawks to continue voting for um, you know, tighter monetary policy, of course, as we know they should be setting policy with a view to where they think um, inflation is going to be on a two to three year horizon rather than where they think it's going to be on a kind of month ahead sort of horizon. Um, uh, and so again, there, I think that could be a little bit more hawkish than, than market expectations. The caveat, I suppose, and why I don't know that this is necessarily going to be massively market moving is just a markets have already come back in a long way. So, you know, we've gone from pricing 150 bips of easing at, at the kind of peak over the last couple of months to now just 100 basis points, um, which actually is, is sort of in line with our central scenario. So it's hard to push back too much on that. And it looks much more fair now than it has previously. Um, but also because markets generally have tended to ignore the Bank of England's projections anyway, because, well, They've been there's been a degree of errors, consistent errors, I would say, over the last couple of months or years, really. Um, as we all know, they're undergoing a kind of forecast review to correct for those errors, uh, but also because there had for a long time been disconnect between what the forecasts were telling us um, and what the Bank of England was was doing, you know, particularly at times last year when they were delivering those outsized hikes. That was quite different from how the, you know, if you just looked at the forecast, what you would think their monetary policy reaction should be. Um, it's actually very difficult to interpret what at all we might hear from the Bank of England, given that we haven't heard from any of them essentially um, since mid-December. <laughs> So the other big topic, of course, continues to be supply. We had a bit of supply-related excitement uh, this week with a larger-than-expected syndication, which was well taken down, but also better-than-expected public finance data. So how are you thinking about both of those as well? Yeah, so I think just quickly on the public finance data, I mean, we don't tend to focus on it all that much on a kind of month-to-month -month basis or necessarily talk about it that much on this podcast, but... Um, it sort of grabs headlines this week, I guess, the proximity to the budget and the fact that PSMB, um, the public sector net borrowing number came in lower than expected. And of course, all the headlines were focused on how that creates, you know, some additional headroom for um, Rishi Sunak to announce um, further fiscal easing, probably in the way of tax cuts at the spring budget. Um, I guess... You know, the, the point for markets here, or there's a couple of points really, is that A, you know, I think that there was some expectation for that headroom, you know, that's currently or back in November was estimated at 13 billion to increase anyway, um, because of the way that the market has moved since those projections were made in November. You know, we have a lower profile for bank rate, lower gilt yields, um, and that, that matters for the OBR's assessment of debt servicing costs. So a little bit more headroom would be generated anyway. Um, but really the key point is that any and all fiscal headroom will be recycled, whatever that headroom is. Um, 
And the other point, I suppose, is that CGNCR, the central government net cash requirement, which is the number which forms the basis for guilt issuance, wasn't actually you know, lower than expectations this month. That actually came in line with expectations. And so far this year is running above the OBR's projections. So all in, um, you know, we're, we're looking at an increase in gross borrowing needs next year, which if you couple that with you know, heavy redemption schedule in the next fiscal year as well means that, you know, gross funding needs could rise to somewhere close to 300 billion, um, which is another kind of 50 billion ahead of where we have been in this fiscal year, um, which, as we all know, has been way higher than than we've kind of been in, in years gone by. Um, the second point on this indication being a bit larger than expected, I think there's been a lot of debates about that this week and how much that might matter for the auction schedule into the end of the year. Um, without going into too much in terms of the detail, I guess I would just caution against reading too much into that slightly larger than expected syndication size. Um, given the number of or the amount of supply that's still left to do via auction and the number of auctions that are still on the schedule, um, it's broadly consistent with the kind of average size of auctions that we've had so far this year. Um, of course, that depends a lot on how the post-auction option facility is taken up. If the maximum of that option facility is used at every auction over the next couple of weeks, then there is the potential that this marginal kind of overfunding, if you like, in the syndication could lead to either smaller um, auctions in in to the end of the fiscal year in March or, you know, in the extreme scenario, maybe even auctions being cancelled. Um, but that wouldn't be my base case at this point. I think the conclusion for now is that um, the bigger than expected syndication this week doesn't change all that much really for the supply numbers going into the end of the year. Um, you know, the risks are clearly to the downside, but I think to focus only on those downside risks would lose sight of the bigger picture that there is still um, plenty of supply to come. Like I said, at, at the remit update in time with the spring budget, we're expecting another big upward revision to um, funding requirements for next year um, but I'm sure we will discuss that in more detail closer to the time so perhaps we'll leave it there for this week thank you both for joining me thank you to our listeners for listening in just a reminder if you liked today's episode please don't forget to hit the like button and click subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available thanks see you next week